Hello, welcome to the first ever episode of Chatting Ball. I'm your host, Max Mishcon. Um, thanks for tuning in. Uh, just to lay out what this podcast is, um, it's basically, I'm just going to get on people who have any sort of relevance to do with football whatsoever. Um, analytics, uh, football manager streamers, FPL addicts, coaches, literally anything, players. Uh, and yeah, any questions, um, the email and the Twitter, which is at chattingballpod, will be linked down below. Um, but I'm very excited to announce uh, our first ever guest. Uh, it's head of content at Analytics FC and freelance writer, podcaster. It's John McKenzie. Uh, John, Happy New Year. How are you? Happy New Year, mate. Yeah, it's great to be on. Uh, excited that, that you invited me on for the first episode. And uh, hopefully there'll be something interesting about my my life and love of football for, for you to get your teeth into in, in the podcast. Yeah, plenty. I'm delighted to have you on. <laughs> Um, so I just want to start off right at the very beginning. Obviously, it's a, it's a football podcast, so I just want to ask you personally, do you have a first memory of football? You know, like, where did your love of the game begin, I guess? Yeah, no, interesting interesting question. Um, people who follow me on Twitter will know that I'm a Leeds fan and I cover Leeds a lot. I have a Leeds fan media site. So my earliest memories of, of football are, are sort of semi-Leeds related, um, but began back in 1994 which shows you how old I am uh, but obviously people who all know football will know that in 1994 there was a world cup and in that world cup um there was a very i think exciting brazil side maybe maybe posterity hasn't uh, remembered them as being exciting but to me uh, who at the time was a, only a 9 year old was i was just uh, amazed uh, by not only the 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 fact that there were people who played football in brazil as well uh, but but also the fact that they played it really well and 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 they were going to win the World Cup. Um, so that that summer, the summer of the World Cup, we went on holiday with some friends, um, and my parents had had gone to university in Bradford, uh, and had stuck around in the area a little while afterwards, and then moved away. But we still had a lot of friends from that sort of area, so we used to go on holiday them with, with them every summer. So we went on holiday, and we were watching the World Cup, and obviously every game that we played was was basically Brazil versus someone. Um, so um, I, we got really, really into into football, and I think that was the first time I really became aware of football as more of a cultural phenomenon. So um, I, I'd obviously played it a lot uh, and, and enjoyed it, but the idea that football could be something that you would watch and enjoy was not something that I'd ever really experienced. And I think I really got into that aspect of football that summer uh, in 1994, this idea that you know there's a culture attached to football and there's something about that culture that's really alluring and... I'd, I'd sort of say that's that's the time I would that's the sort of point I would um, date my my love of football beginning, and obviously because we were on holiday with people from the Bradford area, um, all of the, all of the guys I was with were Leeds fans, um, and they were like, well, if you like football, then then you're a Leeds fan basically, and there was no two ways about it. So mm. that was where my my love of football came from, and that was where my uh, do I call it love for Leeds began? Whatever it is that, that the emotional attachment <laughs> that I have to Leeds began. So yeah, it's been it's been a while now, um, and it's waned here and there. And I'm I'm sure we'll talk about it later. Just the the weird experience mm. of being a football fan and how it changes through time. And um, um, we'll get onto that in, in in a little while, I think. Yeah. Did you have any did you have any players from Brazil or Leeds like when you were nine? You you know pretend to be in the <laughs> playground or like watch on the TV and be like, geez, yeah, yeah, this guy's the man. 
Yeah, so for for me, both of these players are very similar players, actually. But for Brazil, it would have been Romario. Um, I don't know if you remember Romario, but Romario, fairly stock. Also. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, fairly stocky striker. Um, just scored a lot of goals. Um, very powerful runner. Very, um, very, just a really efficient footballer. Able to able to do what you needed to get the ball into the back of the net. And uh, I love that about him. And and obviously, um, maybe a, well, a couple of, would have been the following year, this following season, Leeds signed Tony Aboa in the in the January window or around the January window because things were obviously a, bit, a little bit, bit different back then. And just once Leeds signed Yeboa, I was just totally in. Um, he was just incredible. He was only there for about a season. He signed one January-ish and left the following January-ish and scored, I don't know, 30-odd goals for, for Leeds in both in uh, domestic competition but also European competition. And he was similar to Romario but with just that added level of of finishing ability and flair and and obviously his mm. volley against Liverpool was on match of the day uh, intro for a good long while um I don't know when when that would have been again that dates me but um he was just another player just brought me a huge amount of joy I yeah the I'm only 17 but those there was the, the one against Liverpool and there was another do you know the other one that was like yeah. what was more striking to me is that how similar they both were not the fact they were both unbelievable goals, but like off both off the bar, the same corner, mm. like insane. Yeah, it was against Wimbledon um, that that goal, I think. Wimbledon, yeah. same end as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, nice to hear about you know upbringing as a as a fan. If we if we delve more now in, into your career, mm. just want to ask about just a brief overview of your journey, how you got to this point, where you started, etc. Yeah. So my my career pathway is pretty rambling and meandering um in many respects i'm a failed academic i i went to university uh studied academic theology and philosophy and and always had the intention of going into academia eventually so it meant that in the end i went through the higher the full gamut of higher education um uh, and ended up doing a phd which i actually never finished um partly because um uh, well, various things happened along the way, but partly because I was starting to do more and more freelance work in football writing. Um, so, yeah, that's sort of where I, I, I sort of segued into into the football uh, writing career that way. Um, once I'd got to a point where I decided I wasn't going to finish my my PhD, I started looking around for jobs, and I'd been doing a huge amount of. Um, football writing on the side I was working in a pub as well at the time so I was able to watch quite a lot of football while I was working as well so um, but a job came up in London working for a, basically just a, a media site in London um, they were looking for a football editor so I ended up getting that job I was very lucky with that uh, worked there for about a year and a half um, and that that site was bought out and it changed hands and so I ended up going freelance at that point and, and just working um uh, for sort of sort of finding my own work and and getting gigs where as and when I could, um, and somewhere along the line I started a Leeds United media channel just for, for something a little bit more solid, um, so that there was sort of repeatable income coming in. Um, that's a, a site called All Stats, aren't we? Which is a fan site, but it focuses on tactics and stats, and we've been able to build quite a, a nice community of fans uh, who subscribe to us on Patreon um, and yeah so that's a, another aspect of, of the work that I'm doing at the moment uh, and that's just got bigger and bigger and that's been great as well but um, since January last year so just over a year ago now I started working for Analytics FC 
who are a football data company. Um, I started working as their head of content. Um, so yeah, we're, we're going to talk a little bit, I think, in 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 a, in a minute about what Analytics FC is about. So I'll just leave it there for for the time being. But yeah, very much a, a meandering career pathway. Never really certain of where I was going to go or where I was going to end up. And I'm in many respects still not entirely certain about where I am and where I'm going to end up. So um, yeah, very very varied and, and interesting um, work for me. So uh, I, I really enjoy what I do, and I'm, I consider myself very lucky to be able to do it. Yeah, that's great to hear. Um... Yeah, you touched on Analytics FC, obviously your your head of content. So could you talk about like a typical a typical day um, for you personally and what you'd be doing with the site and what the general goals are, mm. what um, content content you're trying to produce? Yeah, I'll start off just by talking about Analytics FC because that would be a, quite a good context uh, in which to frame everything. So Analytics FC started out as a, uh, a website basically started by a couple of guys, well, four guys who... Um, were university students who were sort of studying things that were data adjacent. So I think a couple of them were, uh, one of them was doing economics. Um, what One of them, I, I think, was doing um, something more on the computer side of things. Uh, and they just really wanted to apply their studies to the football world and see what they could come up with. And they started Analytics FC as a site where they could just post interesting blogs, really, about, about um, analytics and football. Um, and this kind of carried on. They, they started a podcast as well at one point, and this sort of carried along. And then, and they were eventually bought out by a, a guy who who um, really liked the the branding, what they were doing, the website, and stuff like that. So uh, that that guy was a guy called Jeremy Steele, who is now the the CEO of of Analytics FC. Um, and I, I think originally the 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 idea was that Analytics FC was going to take this um, online data scouting platform called Transfer Lab. Uh, which is essentially is just a, a, a platform that clubs can use to help them with their data scouting. And some some clubs may not have um, really advanced recruitment departments, so you could sign up to um, Transfer Lab and you could get access to a huge database which covered hundreds of, of, of footballers and, and lots and lots of leagues. Um, and you could you could basically use it as a as a tool in your recruitment. Um, obviously, like as as time has gone by, the the world of footballers hugely professionalized and so i suppose there's there's one there's more scope to do interesting stuff within the analytics space uh, and two more and more of these clubs are getting uh, re- recruitment departments of their own and so uh, a, a sort of standalone uh, data scouting platform is, is less and less uh, viable as a, as a as a business option and so now we we just basically work as as almost like a consultancy insofar as we can work with huge amounts of different um anyone within the football industry be it owners potential owners uh clubs players agents anything like that we can work with them and help them to use data in a way that will um enable them to achieve the goals that they have within the industry so a really good example of that is kevin de bruyne you may have remembered like last winter um renegotiating his contract with manchester city uh, and he was he had a, a number of things that he was keen on achieving he basically felt he was being undervalued by the club he felt that the the original contract offers that they given him were fairly derisory and he didn't he wasn't um he wasn't negotiating with an agent and so for him he wanted to make sure that he was getting good leverage in terms of what he wanted to get out of the negotiations with something to back it up so he came to us and and basically commissioned a bespoke report which allowed him to show that one he was functioning at a level that was comparable with some of the best levels around Europe and two was being underpaid comparative to those 
um, those talents around Europe. So that's just a really good example of, of one of the things that we we do now. So we work with we will work with anyone who wants to have one of those sorts of bespoke reports generated. We can focus on minutiae, um, and and we answer some really interesting questions uh, that are posed by um, players or. or owners or whatever and so we work at all these different levels we have an acquisition service where we can help people who are looking for clubs to find the sort of club that they might want to work with and do the due diligence there um, we do virtual scouting as well so we can we can work with again similar to the the transfer lab stuff but still clubs who don't have a recruitment department who maybe want a second opinion on a player and um, we have a team who are able to do that uh, we have a coach id service which allows us to help clubs to assess who they might bring in next as a as a manager, uh, and and push up the the level of um, analysis on 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 the management side of things because obviously we spend a huge amount of time finding the right players for a system, but often uh, clubs are way behind the curve when it comes to managers too. So all of those different things now we we're able to apply um, with our analysts, we're um, and build models and uh, and answer sort of very very specific questions as well. Um, so that's basically where we're at in terms of the company. My job as head of content is to is to basically oversee any of the public-facing stuff. So we have a website where we put up articles, we put out press releases, um, and and we put out podcasts and things like that. So I'm in charge of all of that side of things, uh, and I also work in behind the scenes as well. With some sometimes I'll do stuff on the reports, and um, I'll, I'll I'll also help with some of the strategy stuff as well. So a typical day doesn't really exist. Um, it's it's very changeable which is great i really like that i'm the sort of person who likes uh, doesn't like the idea of doing the same thing on, on, on a regular basis so yeah for, for me so for example this morning i i got up i edited a, a chess podcast of all things because i help out on a chess podcast and i had to get that edited up um i'm doing a report at the moment for the yorkshire evening post as part of their content strategy i'm uh, looking at potential uh, replacement players in the midfield for Leeds United so I spent some time playing around with the, some of our stuff to find some interesting things there uh, I will be recording a Leeds United podcast after this um, and I've yeah edited a piece as well which has just gone out on our website so it's it's all it's it's very changeable um, it's very interesting stuff and um, uh, really really enjoy it as I said before yeah that's great Um I think that's quite interesting with analytics FC I don't know if there's many companies or you know uh yeah companies if you will to, regarding analytics that are doing both sides i think you have platforms like stats bomb and, and football reference who are very much you know willing to put out content and stuff for the public and then the consultancy work you don't really hear a lot but um it's quite interesting to hear that you have both sides um and i think giving kevin kevin de bruyne some numbers to back up that he's undervalued is probably not the hardest job um <laughs> in the world given that he's one of the world's best creators um so obviously working for analytics fc is very obvious you know the type of stuff you're working with uh, regarding football so when did this love for analytics begin for you personally yeah i don't know if i'm contractually obliged to say that i love analytics so in many respects i probably i, I sort of i have an interesting sort of entry point to analytics insofar as i i basically was interested in football and obviously like wanted to understand the game and wanted to understand uh, how it's played etc but I played to an okay level when I was at university as an undergrad I played for the first team of the university so I played to a high standard uh, was involved in a lot of coaching sessions and um, yeah I went went through the the university system um, of, of sport 
So I was playing to a quite high, high level. And then when I was doing grad studies later on, uh, I ended up going into coaching. So I coached the, the university's women's team when I was there. And so I ended up thinking about the game a little bit more from that maybe more tactical coaching side of things. Um, and, and obviously, I think if you if you are thinking about um, the tactical side of things, you're thinking about the coaching side of things, you do end up bumping up against analytic views of of um, of where you of, of how you might understand how the game is best played or the people who might be able to play the, the game better or worse in the system that you're playing, whatever. Um, so that's sort of how I ended up segueing that way. And then, to be honest with you, Twitter really was was the place where it really solidified for me. Um, and again, I don't think that I necessarily fell into like full analytics Twitter. I don't. I wouldn't consider myself um, someone who is in analytics football Twitter. Um, but I had some some friends who I think are very smart football watchers um, and who understand the game very well. Many of them have gone on to work in the industry um, what, what, at whatever level, either in recruitment within the analytics um, side of things or within um, maybe yeah, recruitment in the scouting side of things. Uh, and yeah, very patiently, they they told me where all of my terrible ideas were terrible. And uh, I think over the years, I've, I've started uh, understanding how the game works a little bit better. Um, so I, I, I very much arrived at analytics from a from a more tactical slash coaching side of things. Um, and and so for me, analytics is something that is really helpful as a tool to inform the way that you might understand how the game is played. It, I'm not someone who's I get accused of this a lot by Leeds fans, um, but I'm not someone who sits down and, and reads the spreadsheets and, and only really um, takes notice of anything that comes out in the in the numbers. Um, I am very much someone who watches football and then I think, oh, I wonder what the numbers say. Do you think that they'll back up what I think? Uh, let's see how this player's statistical profile is looking this season, uh, whatever. So very much uh, I, I am a, a, someone who likes analytics because it just makes life easier for people who are interested in football because you know essentially the way that i view analytics is okay i i can watch a game of football have a pretty good eye on a player in my opinion um and notice something about them and think well you know this person seems to be i don't know putting up decent pressing numbers um uh, and and also you know is creating a lot of chances in this way now i can i can go back and watch the tape on all of the games that they played and at the end of that, I'll have a much better sense, but I'll also not be able to pinpoint exactly how many pressures or whatever that they've made in that time frame. Or I could just go to the numbers and say, well, over the course of this time frame, the numbers tell me that this player is doing this amount of, of pressing. Um, and I find that helpful. Now, that, that's not to say that I'm then going to say, well, I therefore think that this is, player is a good presser. I think there's obviously way more contextual um, uh, layering that needs to happen from that point on. But it's a very useful starting point. And, and so a lot of the time, like at the moment, just spending today going through some central midfield options for, for leads, right? I can either look at a huge spreadsheet full of hundreds and hundreds of centre midfielders, or I can start using the data to sort of boil them down and say, right, I want to look for a player of this profile. Who are the players this season who've been performing best on this profile? It will give me a, a short list and I can pick some of the names out of there, do a little bit of video scouting and then make my decision on the basis of that. So, yeah, I'm someone who likes analytics because it makes my life easier um, for, for the things that I do. And also it's given me a job. So I, I, I feel quite um, pleasantly about it as well. So, um, yeah. That's that's how that love for analytics began. It began from the coaching side of things, and it it it, it helps me to to actually think smartly about players as well as just eye testing them as well. Yeah, um, 
I think it is important to sometimes remember that it, well, look, I'm not going to tell people how to use data, but for me personally, obviously I, I, I found my love, love quote unquote for analytics on Twitter as well. Mm. And again, I'm not, I'm not deep into it. I'm not going to pretend like I'm some expert, but, um, I, I was in the middle of writing a thesis about data analytics in modern football, uh, ended up quitting it as well. So that's, that's one thing we have in common, <laughs> but, um, I did one big section was on XG and I just realized it had, um, the, the more I read about it, the more I was like, this is actually a really flawed metric, you know, even though it's the kind of poster boy for the analytics, uh, revolution, I guess. Um, and the, you know, the fact there's so much emphasis on it kind of takes away from its initial point. Mm. Um, but yeah, we, we touched on um, Twitter and I think there's a really nice community on there um, full of really intelligent people from all walks of life, from all different academic and cultural backgrounds. Mm. Um, could you have predicted a community like this emerging or, you know, we take, for example, Tom Warville, who I know was with Analytics FC, mm. um, you know, starting out from a from a deep data background, working for Opta, um, then went to the Athletic, and now, obviously, as probably you all know, has a job as a data scientist at RB Leipzig. You know, I think that's that's a great example of someone who's built up a profile um, as a lot of people call him a translator mm. um, and a, a messenger almost. And I think it's really important having people like that who can who are experts in the field. Um, have good visualization tools, incredible writing mm. tools as well, but are just able to relay concepts like expected threat. You know, for example, mm. I don't think we could have ever predicted something like that would be so mainstream being used. What was it? I can't remember what. Um, it was in quite a mainstream um, platform. I don't know if it, I don't know if it was Sky. It might have been BBC. But um, you know, could, could you have predicted something like this would emerge? Yeah, it's a good question. Um... I would reiterate the positivity about Tom Warble. He's a great guy. He is a friend of mine, so I am a bit biased. But um, it's been great seeing the work that, that Tom's done and the way that he's made a name for himself, essentially through starting, as we said, Analytics FC as a website, doing podcasts and writing blogs, and, and has eventually got this job within the industry at one of the best clubs in the world for for young player recruitment. So um, really good on him. In terms of Twitter itself, yeah, I, I only really have positive experiences of twitter now i i should clarify that by saying i'm the sort of person who will have positive um experiences on twitter because i i'm very much at the more privileged end of the spectrum uh, you know being a, a white male cis uh, in in a in a world where people who who uh, have the, that identity tend to get an easier run in life um but i would also say that with twitter i think i've i got the most out of twitter from trying to work out exactly what it was that I wanted from it. And I think the problem with Twitter is that because it's a social media platform where, you know, theoretically you can just converse with anyone, it almost becomes a little bit weird. It's almost like if you were to go to the pub and the expectation was that you could just have conversations with everyone on every table. And I think that's how I started using Twitter at first uh, with this sort of assumption that, you know, it's about just going around and letting people know your views and, and stuff like that. Um, and I've now changed my opinion about it because I've now realized that, you know, when you go to the pub, you don't go to the pub to talk to everyone. You go to the pub with your friends uh, and engage with them. 
So I think I've definitely used Twitter more as a way of uh, of sort of setting out my table at the pub and, and having the people around me who I find interesting and uh, want to talk to in that respect. And to be honest with you, the, the best thing about Twitter for me is is direct messages and, and group chats. Um, that's where I spend most of my time on Twitter. And um, yeah, I very much value it from that, that point of view. So I think with that in mind, I think the, the, the analytics community would, you, you know, it, Twitter was always going to be a space where the analytics community was going to to prosper because there are interesting people, as you've said, in all walks of life um, who are going there and doing interesting things. And to be honest with you, having interesting conversations probably a lot of the time in direct messages or within group chats. Um, And so I I think, yeah, it it was always a matter of time before these sorts of things would start happening. um, And and long may it continue, to be honest. Yeah, um, I think like you again a white male cis you know in a a privileged position again i've had really only positive experiences from twitter Mm. i think the only thing i'd say is that i joined it as a 14 15 year old so i was never a football twitter account but i'm still following a lot of uh football twitter accounts Mm. and so my timeline's a bit uh hectic if you can put it that (laughs) way but and like you said direct messages group chats um for me, I'm 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 more spending time on the timeline, but through that, you know, I've found people like you who's, you know, writing and and tweets. I'm, I really admire and I really, you know, can relate to your to your opinions. Uh, and I literally, it's it's probably the main inspiration behind this podcast is that I've got a, so many people that I'm following and that I'm reading their tweets and articles on a daily basis. I'm like, why don't I just talk to them, um, for my benefit and for the few listeners uh as well um so yeah going back a bit to analytics i want to touch on uh, a piece that really stuck with me that you wrote uh for the co-ops Substack. Mm. it's called football's modern moment i'm sure you'll remember it um you wrote it almost a year ago uh and i just want to i just want to pick out a quote to try and uh ex- explain what this piece is about and, and you can go more into it as well mm. Uh, we talk about football more correctly, albeit more dispassionately, and it basically poses two ends of a, of a spectrum of football uh, diving into modernism and big money, VAR and analytics, and how we're kind of sucking all the life and the and the energy and the original passion um, that football uh, really rose from. Mm. Uh, and I just wanted I just wanted to discuss this mutual exclusivity between modernism. And football in it in its purest form, if you will, um, yeah. Like, can you can you can you go more into the piece? Um, just I'll link it in the description. Mm. For for me, there were parts of it that I loved, and there were parts of it that I just could not get my hands on. You go a lot into uh, philosophy and and deep history. Some of it I got a bit I got a bit lost in just due to me having quite a small brain. <laughs> but it was it was really outstanding. Uh, so thanks for writing it. Can you just touch on it a bit? And, and again, the, the topic at hand. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure any lack of understanding wasn't to do with your brain and was to do with my inability to to explain very concretely. But um, yeah, it's terrifying to hear that that piece was written about a year ago. <laughs> uh, I feel like I've not really written much since then and I consider myself a writer, so not not a particularly good sign. But yeah, this was this was a piece that I wrote just as going back to what I was talking about at the beginning when this notion of like football as a cultural phenomenon that you can enjoy as as a 
as a as a group of people so you can enjoy it as fans of a club you can enjoy it as fans of, of a national team and it, it has that that sort of je ne sais quoi about it something that that brings us back to it that excites us about it that the idea for, for me like at the age of nine just thinking back to that brazil team and this this idea that you know the world was was much bigger than i thought it was the case and and the idea that you could maybe obsess about these these things i remember collecting premier league football stickers from from that sort of time onwards and just being able to pour over these these catalogs of players basically and learn like really arbitrary things like i don't know the birthplace of paul dickov or stuff like you know stuff that's really <laughs> unimportant but it starts giving you this sense of 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 a, of a of a world that's that's sort of bigger than than your immediate surroundings and that's how that's where we and i'm sure you have the same experiences that's that's the sort of football culture that we grow up in and you end up watching the games and the more you get into it the, the, you, you know you 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 get I, I i guess you had the same experience where you just get obsessed with your team and uh, and it becomes everything to you um and i think what i've experienced since those early days is just a maybe a gradual reassessment or reorientation towards that side of the game um in the sense that as the the, the more I've, I've moved into the sort of professional side of the game the 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 more my view of of the game has changed um as as and the game has, has ceased to be and, uh, and maybe this maybe it's it's not really useful to talk about in terms of a binary because i'm sort of caught in the middle of 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 this experience of of, of growing up imbibing football in in the way that british people can uh, but then moving into the industry side of things and having to think about it objectively in scare quotes, whatever that means, but having to try and say, right, let's try and quantify as best we can uh, what's going on in this game, so that we can make sensible decisions, which will be, you know, which will be paid for by clubs who want to make sure that they're making the best decision possible because they're putting so much money into this whole project. So, the the piece for me was very much about trying to come to terms with that shift, um, that shift between being a, a fan who is just able to experience it. it organically the game organically you know in the stands in the pub watching the tv at home on your sofa uh letting the game wash over you and, and just being totally geared towards your team winning or the team that you want to win winning uh and then maybe this more more dispassionate i think is the word that that you took for the quote there um and uh, yeah and the, and the word there as well being correctly so um we the, what i guess what i've my experience of 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 being a football fan uh through time has been that i've gone from um from from sort of imbibing the game as i said in that organic sense to be able to talk about it more correctly uh to know how to talk about the game in in useful ways that um that actually touch on what's going on and as a result of that it's it's changed my relationship to the game so that 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 piece was all about um about how we've we've gone through this this modern moment in in football we've moved from a a point that that we 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 might talk about in terms of intellectual history that movement movement of enlightenment um and and a lot of the the modern ills that people feel in terms of like the 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 decadence of society just being writ large on on things like analytics within football or var is another great example of that where where no longer can you talk about have arguments about refereeing decisions where at the end of the day it doesn't really matter what is right and wrong just that you can have the arguments to this very very um forensic view of of football now where you you think about 
each refereeing decision in terms of it being right or wrong. Um, and I think that that brings with it lots of, of, of issues. And uh, yeah, that piece was very much about me coming to terms with that and trying to understand what it meant to be a fan, um, having gone through that shift um, through football's modern moment. Yeah. Um, well, I just want to ask if you're, since that piece, have you come to some sort of conclusion I think it's it's quite hard to because there's there's so many there's so many things to think about like this disillusion of football having an end goal what's the what's the real purpose of it you know we use we use the term correct mm. is it to fully understand it to get a team of 11 robots basically or you know is it for you know passion and desire um I was just thinking about uh, did you watch the Chelsea Liverpool game I did catch it yeah yeah, so you think about the first half, which, in my opinion, I can't really. Obviously, you'll have a bigger history of watching football, but I can't remember a half of that intensity mm. matched with quality. I, I really can't match it. The first half, at least. Mm. But do you think? Can you can you get to that? Can you get a forty-five minutes like that without the copious copious amounts of data uh, mm. Liverpool used to recruit? You know like some of the stuff analytics FC do, you know, mm -hmm. consultancy work, hours and hours just to say, actually, maybe we shouldn't sign him. Uh, or obviously the new money and the big money of Abramovich and Chelsea to recruit a squad of 18 world-class world -class players. Mm -hmm. Like, But I also thought about in the end, what you get from that 45 minutes is me and you talking about it going, oh my God, what a game. You get a crowd going, going mental. You get Gary Neville, you know, having orgasms so you do get I guess you do get that passion in the end but it's it's through just the immense quality which is through I guess being correct mm. and I think you know we touched on the term organic but I think both sides of uh, the argument you pose in the piece could argue different things for what organic mean in the sense does it mean correct or does it mean you know human nature mm. you know just just enjoying football in it's, it's purest form like have you and that was very long-winded, but have you have your views changed in that sense? Do you do you watch football and think you know what this is this is what I think? Yeah, I think this is a really astute question because I think I should clarify that when I talk about that shift, that modern moment that that you go through from from a sort of more organic to a more maybe objective or scientific view of, of football, that's very much a journey that I've gone on, and football itself, I think, at the highest level, has gone through that. Um, but that doesn't mean to say that you can't still enjoy the game. Uh, as in, in that organic sense, the, the way that we always used to. But I think that the, the point to make is that football, football per the quality of what's going on has never been better. This is the best moment to watch football if you're a football yeah. fan ever. And there's, there's no doubt about it. And the reason why that is the case is precisely as you've said, because we understand the game better. We, we now know how to make better decisions. We now know how to get players nutritionally uh, and and uh, in terms of exercise periodization, et cetera, to the, to the very peak of their abilities. Now, there's questions to be asked about the way that we, we deal with that and, and whether or not we're burning out players very quickly because um, we, we, uh, we want to get them to that, that sort of maximum intensity for the whole of, of their, their their peak. But that's another question for another another day. The, 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 when, when you say that there is still the ability to organically enjoy what's going on in the field, very much true. And I very much enjoy a fine football match like that game, uh, that, that Chelsea game versus Liverpool. I watched the first half of um, Spurs versus Chelsea yesterday and Chelsea's build-up was just incredible in that game. 
and you watch that and and i think when you know what's going on you can enjoy that and you can you can just say that this is an inc- tactically that that was just an absolutely fantastic game um when you t- talk about the chelsea liverpool game you're watching players like mohammed salah who is arguably the best in the world at the moment and some of the stuff that he's doing and you're thinking you know there's there's no one else in barely in world history who could do the stuff that he's doing there's there's no way that you can't enjoy that so there's definitely there's still the organic side of things there um i think for me the issue is isn't the 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 more that we focus on like professionalization through data and through money as you've said the issue with that is that it creates an illusion of what football should be at the very highest level and I think for me, maybe where that then breaks down is that when I watch football lower down the leagues, I find it harder to enjoy because it seems like a shadow mm. of that more perfect football that we've created. Now, I don't know whether or not, um, you, you know, you could... There, there's, I guess, an alternative timeline where football doesn't become as heavily moneyed as it is. Because let's face it, that's what this is all about, right? You don't... The, the data analysis side of things, the, the hyper-professionalization that we're seeing is the result of them being more and more football money in the game. So clubs have to get it right more and more. If people are going to be putting more and more money into football clubs, they have to know that their investment isn't just an arbitrary um, thing. So that's why data analysis, analysis has, has become a big thing. That's why I have a job, because someone somewhere... Is making a, is spending a lot of money on this and wants to get it right. Same with VAR, right? VAR is basically a way of of protecting your assets from from and you, you want to say to very rich owners, look, you you shouldn't be worried about owning a Premier League side because we have VAR, so you're not going to be as vulnerable to sort of arbitrary refereeing decisions. Uh, we're going to give you the best chance possible for your for your assets to to perform as as they should on the pitch. Um, so there, there is a timeline where that doesn't happen, and I guess my question then would be: Would we, would what? I mean, we wouldn't be able to focus the amount of energy and and uh, just sheer uh, investment that we do on football in the same way. And so, football anal- analytics and and coaching uh, knowledge and nutrition stuff would be miles off the level that they're at. Um, but do, do I think that that might be a, a world that was more a football world that was more enjoyable? It'd certainly, be a a world that would be more equal there would be probably more equality across the leagues um and would i enjoy that football in in the same way so i mean this is a hypothetical situation but i think for me that modern moment is very much the the realization that i don't know maybe it's like it's maybe like a form of addiction where you you get get yourself used to higher and higher levels grades of whatever you're addicted to and then anything below that doesn't really fulfill the 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 desires that you have from uh, you know, experiencing or uh, consuming that that thing, and I feel that that way a little bit with with football, maybe. So, for example, this season watching Leeds has been hard work for me um, because you're sort of caught between being a fan and wanting them to win, but also at the same time being able to watch the games with an eye to the tactics and the football quality, and and being aware that there's there's so much that's going wrong that in terms of the actual spectacle itself, the quality is just not very high and it's not very enjoyable. So, I think. I think for me, that's how I would answer. Sorry, I know that's a very long-winded way of answering your question, but I agree with you. I think that the organic side of things is still there. Um, but the question for me is like the extent and the scope for, for someone who works in the industry. It becomes harder and harder, I think, to to enjoy the game at that sort of innocent level where you're just able to let it wash over you and, and you're able to just be like, yeah, I'm, I'm happy because my team scored a goal and I don't care that the quality wasn't very good. Uh, I'm just happy that they won. And I think that's maybe the element that I've lost a little bit as as I've gone through that modern moment. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. I mean, I think I've found a 
a way of, well, I think it's quite ironic. I've found a way of measuring like how modern football is, and it's you can maybe do like how many um, you know players uh, you categorise as streets would never forget per season. <laughs> I think there'd definitely be like a downwards, a, a complete you know decline in numbers because um, I just think there's no, as you said, when there's money, you know. It's, it's like a business. You just need to get it correct. There's no real room for error. There's mm. no room to go assign this player. He wears a, a, he wears like some cool gloves or he's got a certain running style. Like players like Shamak to rap, you know, th- these, are, these are players I grew up and I'm like, oh my God, like actually so cool. <laughs> like look at, Sh- look at Shamak just wearing a neck warmer and like not really doing anything. I'm just like, I love this guy. <laughs> um, to rat as well, just pretty useless, and unless he's got the ball and, and mm. there's a man in front of him to you know for him to nutmeg. Yeah. Um, but I think, I think I think about two things as well from that piece. Um, I question, you know, myself, and is this is this me just growing up? Is this, yeah. you know, is this what football is when when you're an adult? Yeah. And it's really not, because I've been to games, I go to games. Um, I'm very fortunate to, and there were men two times, three times older than me behaving like toddlers um piss drunk screaming because the ball's going over a line and so i guess you never really lose that um <laughs> you know the child in you you know you watching um italian 94 watching romario watching your boa you never really lose that but football is it is changing with the emergence of of new money mm. um and the the second thing i questioned was i think there's always uh there's always a way for it to even if there's a, a storyline where, you know, for example, Man City assembling a squad of, you know, billion, billions and billions worth of worth of players yeah. with a, a tactical genius, the, the level of detail they'll go into with their sports science, with their tactics, with their analytics, etc. But what you get there is a match. Uh, whoever they're playing, basically, it, it's it's almost like the bourgeoisie versus versus the the proletariat, where you get this like big money machine against, you know the worker quote unquote mm. and then you get you know you get a storyline you get you know city are playing where you get a, an enticed home crowd um you know and there is there is a sense of organicism there um there is a sense of passion there and i think you know it will be a, it's never great you know with this much money in the game that we have to try and look uh on the bright side mm. of things i guess i guess the, um, to come back to to you on that like People still watch the game. Like we, we, we're going to have a World Cup in Qatar this year, and it's the most controversial World Cup ever. And yet, most people will still watch it happily. Um, there's so many, there's so many situations where you can, where moral questions are arise within football, and it doesn't stop people mm. from watching. So there's clearly that organic side of things to things there, right? Um, that that whatever you do to to the game, there will still be people watching it. And I think that's that's part partly why football is in trouble in, in, in these sorts of moral senses a lot of the time because because people like it so much that they can't not watch it. Um, and so I definitely don't think that the professionalization of sport or the movement through this modern moment has necessarily stopped people's interest in football, even though I do think that there there are negative aspects to it as well. Yeah. I I think with with new money as well comes a lot of politicalization on and off the pitch. Mm. Like how do you even? Um, I have a, a Newcastle um fan coming on uh the podcast in a few days, and I'm gonna ask him. But you know, I can't imagine as a Newcastle fan, how do you even? How do you how do you weigh up? You know, 
you know your your owners taking over your club when you know some of the human rights atrocities that they've committed their 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 homophobic policies like how do you even how do you even weigh it up um you know if I'm a, if I'm a united fan how do I see Ronaldo signing you know albeit he's in a he's in a sexual allegations uh you know he's he's accused of sexual assault stuff like that obviously there was politics involved many decades ago but i think it's it's changed now and i think it's become a bit more personal where if you saw in the 50s and 60s it was more um i think the players on behalf of the government i think the players are now becoming government in themselves you know the um, you know their net worth and their more assets is rather than people now mm. um but yeah i want to i want to end it on um a segment uh, a recurring segment i want to do on this podcast um I just want to hear all-time five-a-side team, past and present. Could be players, could be your mate you've grown up with. <laughs> you rock up at Power League. Which five players do you want on your team? Okay, yeah. So I'm I'm going to answer this question very much from uh, um, the the players that I want to play with. So I'm going to be on the team. I know that's that's not me saying that I should be in the best five-a-side team of all time just for the qualifications, but I I want to be playing because I'm not going to stand on the side. So uh, these are the players who I think that. I would like to have on my five-a-side team, not because I think they're necessarily the best in the world, although some of them I think were very good, um, but because I would really enjoy playing with them. Um, so I'll be playing in in the middle. <laughs> um, wow. <laughs> Big call. Yeah, I will be playing alongside Moussa Dembele of Spurs. Moussa Dembele oh. with one S, because he is my, yeah. I think maybe my absolute favourite player of all time. Um, just a, a, a just the the ultimate press resistant midfielder who was just a, 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 a beast at progressing the ball and um, yeah really loved him he gave me hours and hours of entertainment um, so yeah he would be there Tony Abo has got to be in there as well so he'll we'll stick him up front um, I, I did actually play in a Leeds media charity event uh, earlier in this year and I played alongside Clyde Vinehart. Um, who you almost certainly won't ever have heard of. Um, I do not. <laughs> yeah, even Leeds, Le- even Leeds fans, um, I, I don't think would would know who he is. But he was a, an ex Leeds player. He came the same sort of time as um, Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank, um, and we played alongside him. And he's now probably like three times the weight he was when he played for Leeds. But it was great fun playing with him. So I imagine the same thing would be true if I played with Yabo. It'd just be great to link up with with someone who once played for my club. Um, Kevin De Bruyne, another name that we've already mentioned. I just think he—he's uh, just one of my favourite players of, of all time as well. Um, I have mm. a—I have a soft spot for for Belgian footballers, clearly, um, and I think he would add a little bit of flair. And then in goal, I've always thought about this. Like with, when you're in, when you want someone to play in goal, the five aside, right? You don't, you don't necessarily want someone who's. I don't know. There's two. There's two answers I could give here. One is just like, oh, the best shot stopper, because that's all you really need, right? So someone like um, Donnarumma. He's just massive, would would fill the goal, probably wouldn't let much in. Or you could have someone who is actually a baller themselves and could could uh, run out from the back and break down the opposition press by by being a good ball carrier. So like a footballer who's good in goal. So I guess I could say John O'Shea because he played in goal once for Manchester United. Um, and I think he'd be a fun option to have as well uh, and have him just there to, to do the basic shot stopping, but also to, to run out of the back. Now, I realise this is the most bizarre five-a-side team of all time, but I think oh, it'd be pretty... It's a great team. I think it'd be fun yeah. fun to play with. 
Yeah, no, that's a quality team. <laughs> but I think I think there's a there's a there's a third answer for in goal. I just want like someone like Jens Lehmann, someone that's just gonna shit house the whole game. <laughs> like waste time, screaming at the opposition, like I just want some some big shit house in goal. Ben Foster. Um yeah, Ben, ben Foster, Foster did that at Ellen Road his... the other day against Watford and was there and the fan it just drives the fans wild. Absolutely yeah. wild. No, I want him with his with his little GoPro in the in the goal as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um but yeah, who who would you say you're if you're in the middle, which player you most like? Uh, I mean, I'm nowhere near the level of any of them including John O'Shea, but um <laughs> when I played I started out actually as a when I was playing at the highest level, I was playing as a striker because I was very rapid um and uh, made up for a, a lack of understanding of the game and probably ability by being very quick but as time went on I um I dropped further back I actually when I was at university I played for my college team um I played for the undergrads and the postgrads and I ended up racking up the record number of point uh, of appearances for my college so uh, I've got a lot wow. of goals under my belt so and and in those times I played as a central midfielder uh, and I definitely got much better on the ball in that in that period so I was yeah fairly press press resistant like ball carrying midfielder um the, the the you know one of those sort of quietly neat and tidy midfielders who you never really think about but but actually does does a lot of stuff right which is why I'm biased towards these sorts of players that's why Adam Forshaw mm. is probably my favorite Leeds player at the moment so um I I have a real fixation on on sort of the the unsung heroes because I have some misguided uh, understanding that I was for my team an unsung hero so <laughs> mm. maybe maybe Rooney moved back Move back as he is. Yeah, on. well, Rooney is only, a, I think he's only a, a, a few weeks older than me. So um, there you go. Yeah, I was just, I was just a tin pot Rooney, basically. <laughs> Good stuff. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, that's going to be the end of the podcast for today. John, thank you very much for coming on. I hope you enjoyed it. I've had a great time. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, cheers. Um, if you made it this far, what are you, A, what are you doing? Uh, and <laughs> B, thank you very much. Um, Again, John's socials, uh, Football's Modern Moment, my Twitter and uh, the podcast email will be linked below. Uh, And until the next episode, goodbye. Take care. See you later.